my uh, first church that I served as a full-time pastor um, was in Pottstown. And that was way back in the 80s. Uh, so Doris and I moved down here. We got to know the Deering family when Tim was running around as a toddler. Um, and kind of some of the people that were part of the Parker Ford Church then, which are no longer with us because of time and age. <laughs> but, uh, and some still are, of course. Anyway, so it's always been cool to come back here and share with you guys. Um, then uh, back in, uh, was it 03, when you came on staff at Effort, I believe. So Tim and I had an opportunity to work together for five or six years uh, at the Effort of Church of the Brethren, and that was a real joy as well. So um, they talk about me mentoring them, and I would say um, it's been mutual. So as we invest in each other's lives, we learn from one another, and it's been a real blessing and joy. So thanks for inviting me to come and speak. Uh, as DJ said, this is the end of a series you've been in, Further Up and Further In. So I was just thinking how dangerous it is to invite somebody to come and finish a series who hasn't heard the rest of the series. So I was just thinking, you know, I, I could, you know, I may say the exact same things that DJ's been saying for the last couple of weeks or whoever's been preaching. Um, and if I do, I, I'm sorry. Uh, Worse than that, I may say opposite things. <laughs> so if I come across with something that you're like, well, that's not what DJ said, just believe him and assume that I've missed it somewhere along the line. Um, but, and the other, the other thing is, you know, not being able to connect some dots. But I had this series, I looked at it, I prayed over it, and it just happened that with my schedule, this was the Sunday that I was able to be here and, and to share with you guys. So I'm looking forward to sharing what's, uh, what's before us. Um, and this, uh, the topic today is seated on the throne. It's kind of culminating this whole idea of, of um, pressing into our relationship with God further in. And as we go further in, we go further up in the sense. And today we kind of come to a look at what's ahead for us as the Lord uh, has prepared a future for all of us. So I'm excited to share about that. I always love preaching about heaven. And that's a little bit what we're pressing into today. So uh, the first passage of Scripture comes from um, Matthew 20. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, Matthew 20, beginning at verse uh, 20. I call it an audacious request. Matthew 20, 20. Just reading down through verse 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is James and John, by the way, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, which he meant his sufferings, of course. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I don't know about you guys, but, um, you know, we all had mothers, And I don't know what your relationship with your mother was, 
what that looked like over time. My wife, unfortunately, lost her mother when she was only eight years old. So I never knew my wife's mom. I often wished I did. She must have been a beautiful woman because she had a beautiful daughter. <laughs> um, my mother, on the other hand, uh, lived till she was 89. And um, when I read this passage <clears throat> and I bump into this request, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom, I think of my mom because that's exactly what she would have done. <laughs> she, she was kind of a strong domineering woman, right? And I could see her <laughs> if I was in this situation making this kind of an approach. And so it's an audacious request on the part of uh, John, uh, James and John's, John's mom, but an interesting one, and it led to some very interesting conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. So um, his response, of course, was, this isn't for me to grant. Um, but he does... I, well, I asked the question, I asked myself the question, where does, this, where does this come from? Where does this request of this mom come from? It seems kind of like, wow, this is amazing that she would just pop this request on Jesus. But if you back up a bit in, in Matthew, context is always important as we're studying Scripture, as you know. As you back up a bit in Matthew to um, 19, 23 to 30, you, 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 chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, actually, a man comes to Jesus and asks him what he has to do to be saved. And Jesus says, well, you've got to keep the commandments. And he says, well, I've done that. Well, you've got to, you know, the greatest two are love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. And I've done all that, uh, the guy says. And Jesus says, well, if that's the case, then uh, you need to sell your possessions. Give, give all the money to the poor and come and follow me. And the, and the guy, the scripture says, because he was very wealthy, went away very sad. Um, and then we pick up in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So there's a context for Mary's, or not Mary, for the, uh, James and John's mother. There's a context for her question to Jesus. He says, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones. And I think there's a picture here in the book of Revelation where we see an image of, of Jesus on the throne, and there's, there's, there's 24 thrones around him. I'm thinking, well, 12 for the apostles, these 12. 12 for the sons of Israel, the children of uh, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, the, the, the children of Israel, representing all the people of God assembled in heaven. And we'll maybe see that passage a little later. But this idea that 
wow, there's, there is a future prepared for those who follow Jesus. And no sacrifice made in this life will go unrecognized when it's done you know, for Christ. And there'll be, there's a future prepared for us. A very one, and Jesus says it's, it's uh, after the renewal of all things. So when this world as we know it, when life as we understand it now, when this era of God, God's interaction with his people comes to an end, at the renewal of all things, there's going to be an amazing an amazing future for all of us who, who follow him. And it relates to thrones and sitting on them, which is the theme for our sermon this morning. So I want to just, for a moment, um, share a couple things with you that we sometimes get confused about. Um, I like to think in terms of there being two heavens, that uh, when we talk about dying and going to be with the Lord, going to heaven... You know, we have some things pictured in our minds, and Scripture talks about that. But then there's also this picture of, of the final abode, the final place. And so there's these two heavens in Scripture. There's the one that Jesus refers to when uh, he turns to the thief on the cross, the, the, the guy that was being crucified next to him that was, that was kind of uh, in a repentance mode. And Jesus turns to him and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. So obviously Jesus promised this repentant criminal that, you know, after death, he's going to wake up and he's going to be in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, in a place called paradise, okay? We believe that. Paul said to live is, is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, I, you know, to go to be present with Christ is far better than being alive in the body, but you know, this is Paul's uh, uh, sharing at one point in his writing. So there's this place called paradise. There's also, in the book of Revelation, as John sees this vision of the culmination of all things. At the end of the book of Revelations, he sees a new heaven and a new earth uh, kind of before him, spreading out before him, a new Jerusalem descending out of the heavens. And uh, no doubt some of that is kind of metaphorical and symbolic, but he sees this renovated, renewed place, a new heaven and a new earth. So I like to think in terms of there being a, whoops, I must have hit the wrong button there, sorry. Did I do something wrong? Yeah, let's see. There we go. I like to think in terms of uh, the present heaven and a final heaven. I like to capitalize final heaven, present heaven. So present heaven is where, God forbid, if you walk out of here this, this morning and your time's up and God calls you home, you will be like the thief on the cross in the presence of God in a place called, we call it heaven call it paradise, whatever, uh, a very real, a very exciting place. But it's not the end. It's not the final thing. Uh, there is also prepared at the end of time, the culmination, the renewal of all things, when this world, as we know it, comes to an end and Jesus returns and the book of Revelation and all that stuff is rolled out. There, become, there comes a new heaven and a new earth, the final abode of the righteous. So uh, those two heavens um, are always kind of before us, and, and they're both really interesting to kind of explore what Scripture says about them. I don't have time for all of that this morning. Uh, <clears throat> the present heaven and the final heaven, they're different in location and experience and activity. <laughs> Got the words a little small there for me to read from up here. Uh, I don't really want to get into all of that, but 
you know, this image of the final heaven uh, is pictured for us in Scripture as being a new heaven and a new earth, I would say a new universe. And I believe the final heaven is going to be right here you know, on a regenerated, in a regenerated world. And not just right here, but even beyond here, perhaps. But the present heaven is somewhere else. Now, I actually think it's not necessarily up there. Or I, I actually think the present heaven is alongside of us. It's another realm of existence beyond the ability of the human eye to see. And that's why, Rev, uh, that's why Hebrews 12 can talk about we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Those people who died mentioned in Hebrews 11, we're surrounded by them. They're here in some very real sense, but not a physical sense, some very real spiritual sense. But anyway, that's, these two heavens are very different. And uh, both heavens are about forgiveness, about healing, and about the presence of God. But what we're doing in the present heaven and what we're going to do in the final heaven are different. And this scripture that's before us this morning is thinking about the final heaven. The final heaven is like, wow! The uh, present heaven's pretty exciting. If you think about what's going on now, those loved ones of ours that died in Christ, and they're surrounding us like a great cloud of witnesses. But... The, the, the future heaven, the final heaven, this is, uh, uh, it's almost indescribable. And we're going to try to press into a little of that this morning when we think about this idea of being seated on the throne. So obviously Jesus, when he's talking in Matthew 19, which is the foundation or the background for the question that mom asked Jesus for her sons, is about the renewal of all, when the renewal of all things has happened. So he's obviously looking past some, you know, uh, experience that his disciples might have uh, when they pass away. He's looking past that. He's looking to this time that the book of Revelation pictures for us, this time when all of this is wrapped up. Uh, and uh, it's the final heaven period of time. And scripture does picture for us a, a time of restoration, of, of renewal, when sin is lifted. So the renewal of all things. Uh, just a few passages of Scripture to talk about this. Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings... This is Paul sharing with the Romans. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, that's, the, that's what your friends in El Salvador understand. Huh? No matter what you're dealing with in this life, how dark, evil, or, or, or painful it is, it is nothing compared to what God has prepared to, re- to reveal in us and through us. For the creation, that is the world in which we live, in eager, uh, the, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who frustrated who subjected it. When, when did that happen? When was the creation subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by God's choice? When? When? Huh? Pardon? Adam and Eve. Yes. Genesis 3. Sin. When, when sin enters the world, there is, I, I, I say there was a tsunami, a spiritual tsunami that rolled throughout the universe when Adam and Eve sinned. And there's an impact on our world. This whole earth is subjected 
to a curse. Uh, so um, where am I there? Um, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of, uh, of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from, the, from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So this world in which we live is under a curse. It's the curse of sin. And that's, that curse has a rolled-out effect into everything. Things die because of the curse. Things are broken because of the curse. We struggle against the curse of sin in our world. It's only by the grace of God and the Spirit of God that we're liberated from that, that we can walk through it in victory because of what God does in our lives. And we do, we're doing that in hope of the day. The day is coming when, when that curse will be lifted and this world will be renewed. There'll be the renewal, the rejuvenation of all things. As God restores back to his creation its original intention before sin infected it. When's that happen? Well, I think that's what we see in the book of Revelation. At the end of all things, a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness, John says in his revelation. So, um, wow, someday this is all going to be different. There won't be dark places. It'll all be glory and righteousness at the renewal of all things. Um, So Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the future, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to sit on the throne next to Jesus, with Jesus. The image, the symbols, the images vary a bit depending on the text you're looking at. Uh, and we're going to share in his glory. So what is a throne? Well, a throne, I think, is... When I read these passages, you know, I go back and forth between, do I, do I, you know, is there going to literally be a throne, or is the throne symbolic of something even greater and more majestic than that? I don't know for sure about that. I know the throne, a throne is symbolic of, of a number of things. When you hear the word throne, what do you think of? Kings, right? Is that what you're saying, king? Uh, and you think, yeah, you think of uh, power, you know, the idea of strength and authority. Kings sit on thrones or judges. You know, in our, we don't have kings in our particular you know, world, our, our country. Uh, and our, our president doesn't have a throne. I'm glad about that. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about judges. You know, judges sit on this big bench behind this desk, and I often, I often think when I'm watching a movie, you know, and the, the judge kind of rules against evil and pronounces a righteous judgment. I'm like, man, I'd love to be a judge. That's power, you know? You just say, away with him. <laughs> um, but um, so this is symbolic of power and strength and authority. A throne is also a symbol of majesty. You know um, uh, Jack Hayford's song, Majesty? Um, majesty. Worship his match. I can't sing. That song, you know when he wrote that? He and his wife were visiting uh, England, and they had just toured Buckingham Palace, and they had seen the Queen's chamber or whatever, the throne, and he came out of there so impressed with, you know, with kind of the majesty and the glory of, of royalty. And, and he started to think about, but compared to God, 
And so he wrote this little song, Majesty, that's really old now. But uh, So that whole idea of this majestic, kind of powerful um, presence that the throne symbolizes for us. And, of course, ruling. Thrones are about kingdoms and about reign, about authority over a region. Uh, so to rule and uh, justice, uh, ideally, a king meets out righteousness and justice. A, a good king uh, stands for truth and makes sure that his subjects are, are doing well. Uh, you know what I mean? Like that whole sense of, of justice is tied to the throne. So when we think about Jesus saying, you're going to sit on a throne next to my throne, we can picture God on a throne and all of these things true of him. Jesus on a throne, all of these things true of him. But he says, you're going to sit on the throne next to me, or as the other passage of Scripture we'll look at, uh, sitting even on the throne with him. So God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne, uh, the psalmist says. Revelation 4 through 8 has this constant image of the throne. John is taken up in Revelation 4 after the letters to the churches. He's taken up in Revelation 4, and he enters like the throne room of heaven, and he sees this image of the throne and and God on the throne and and all that's going on around that. It's a biblical metaphor that runs throughout Scripture that God and Jesus have the strength and power and glory and majesty and rule and reign uh, that's represented by a throne in a kingdom. So, uh, along with that comes this amazing promise from Revelation 3, which is the other passage of Scripture that we want to look at this morning just briefly. So, if you want to check this one out, Revelation 3, last book of the Bible, unless you have the book of concordance. Revelation 3, um, it's uh, uh, a series of, of messages to churches and uh, the beginning of the book of Revelation, and this last church, Laodicea, receives this very interesting word, and I'll take the time to read it because it's more important you hear God's words than mine, right? So Revelation 3.14, the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And now this amazing promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. An amazing promise from Jesus that uh, those who persevere, those who are victorious, will sit with him on his throne. Now, the image changes a little bit from what Jesus said to the 12 disciples. They're going to be in 12 thrones surrounding him. Uh, And maybe that's a specific word to those 
those disciples. Now he's speaking to all of us who will be victorious, who will serve him and consistently follow him throughout life, that uh, we will sit with him on his throne. Think about the image of strength and power and authority and majesty that that throne represents that's true of Jesus into which we're invited as we enter into glory with him. That's an amazing, an amazing promise that he gives us. It suggests that as joint heirs with Jesus, we're going to share in his rule. So I just want to unpack a little bit some implications of this. What, what's implied by the fact that we're going to sit with Jesus on his throne? You say, well, how are all of us going to get there? It must be a really big throne. Okay, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. We're invited into a relationship with Jesus that, in which we share. We're heirs, joint heirs, Scripture says, with him. And all that uh, comes his way because of his obedience to the Father. So I want to unpack just a few things this morning. A few glimpses of what it might mean for you and for me to be seated with Jesus on his throne in the final heaven after the renewal of all things. Uh, I think it suggests a shared glory. So um, those who are victorious will sit on my throne. John 17, as Jesus was praying, um, after he ended his time with his disciples in the upper room, just before he crossed the Kidron Valley into Gethsemane and was betrayed and then crucified the next day, Jesus is praying in John And he says at the end of that prayer, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, (coughs) to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And that's an amazing prayer. You should read the whole thing. But catch this glimpse of an invitation for us to, to step into a relationship with Jesus in which he says earlier, where in which we become one with him. He, I and the Father am one. They are in me. I'm in you. You're in them. This, this language goes back and forth. This language of relationship that Jesus invites us into that will culminate in the fact that we're seated on his throne with him, sharing in his glory, his majesty. Uh, that awesome relationship that he has uh, as the creator of the world. I, I don't know what all that means. I can only imagine what it means to be invited into that relationship where I share in the glory of God. Uh, I think it suggests ruling that we share in this uh, invitation, or we, we receive this invitation to share in the authority that Jesus has as the creator to rule over his creation. And you notice what he says. He says at the end of this passage in Matthew 19, uh, that, that, his, that those who follow him are going to be sitting on these, these thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at least the disciples at that point are invited into this relationship where they're going to, they're going to share the rulership, the, the judgment of, of God, as the saints come before the throne that's pictured there in Revelation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, this is when he's admonishing the Corinthians about um, not being able to settle differences among themselves and going to, the, uh, going to court to do it. He says, don't you guys realize that, that you're, going, you're going to judge angels? And it's just a, just a, a statement in passing, uh, one given an admonition for the fact that we can't settle differences. Now, where the fact is, where we're destined 
where we're destined in the future is at some day to be seated on a throne where we share in the responsibility of somehow discerning what the value, the service, the pro- I don't know, of, of even angels, let, the, let, let alone the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, uh, so I, I, again, I don't know what all that means except that being seated on a throne, sharing in God's glory, suggests we also share in this place of responsibility of ruling over all creation. It suggests reigning, which is a little different than ruling, I think. Um, the scripture says that, uh, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and in Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It doesn't mean you're going to inherit the earth today in this life necessarily, that you can go claim your neighbor's property and say, by the way, I inherit this. No, it means that faithfulness is going to result in the fact that someday this is all going to be a part of the domain in which we live where only righteousness prevails. So uh, there's this passage in the book of Revelation, or the book of Hebrews that's, that's really amazing. Um, and we often kind of miss the power of this. Um, and... I got that really small. I'm going I'm to read it this way. Sorry. I shouldn't turn my back on you guys. So uh, the book of Hebrews begins by casting this vision about who we are in respect to all of God's creation. And he says, it's not to the angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where somewhere he has testified, and now he quotes from Psalm 8. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. Now, sometimes we read this and we think he's saying that everything is being given to the angels. They're the ones that will have authority over, you know, over creation. But that's not what, that's not what he's saying at all. Um, he's saying instead... He's saying, as you look at this, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, mankind? You made them, mankind, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them, mankind, with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Then he goes on to say, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Oh, yeah, this doesn't apply to us now. You know, we don't, we don't have full authority and rule over the world now. If we did, we could fix everything, right? No. But he's saying in the future, when the renewal of all things has occurred, realize that everything God made is going to be placed under our power, control, rule. And there's no sin. So there'll be no misuse. There'll be no, you know, but... But that, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing thing that he's talking about. So we're invited to sit with Jesus on his throne, to enter into his glory, to share his glory, uh, to be where he is and to see him fully as he is. Uh, we're, we're invited to, 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 to engage somehow, to share somehow in this place of authority and, and ruling and reigning over all that God has made. We, of course, are invited into this place of worship. The book of Revelation is filled with these images. Uh, John says, I looked, 
And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. This is this throne room vision in Revelation. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And the passage is filled with worship images. I don't have time to look at all of it. Worthy is the Lamb. Um, this worship scene in heaven. So, of course, we're invited to this place of worship. We're, we're, and, and we do this, these are just a few glimpses of what it's going to mean to sit on the throne throughout eternity with Jesus. We do this in fully restored bodies. Uh, we shall be like him in his glorious body. First John 3 says, uh, you know, has, it hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him just as he is. First uh, Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrected body. And Paul says at one point, there's a natural body. This is it right here, natural body, designed for natural world. There is also a spiritual body, which you receive, after the resurrection, designed for a spiritual world, a new heaven and a new earth, a new body for a new heaven and a new earth that will be uh, amazingly designed for life in that particular place. Um, so that's, those are glimpses <laughs> of what I think this all means. Further in and further up. It's what's prepared for us. And so I was just closing this sermon with these thoughts. You know, sitting on a throne, Sharing in a glory not my own. Discerning, discovering, exploring a world renewed, a universe revealed. No condemnation, no sorrow, no sin. All things forgiven, all things set free. Eternity before me, basking in the beauty of a creation made whole. In Christ, this is our destiny. Let's pray. God, we know that uh, we're all on a journey to know you and to experience you in fullness. And we know we uh, you know, sometimes feel like we take uh, you know, a step forward and two steps back in that journey. But uh, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, I think DJ mentioned earlier, you said you are with us always to the very end of the age. And we confess our faith in you and our trust in you and our confidence in you. We are those who desire to persevere and be victorious to the end. And it's amazing to catch a glimpse of what you have prepared for those who love you, for those who serve you. And as we press into a relationship with you, and we are called to ascend, to rise up, and to uh, increasingly experience what all that means in our lives, we have before us this vision of a throne with you seated on it and us sitting on your lap sharing in all that has been prepared for us in this new heaven and this new earth in which dwells righteousness. So God, may that vision always inspire us to faithfulness. May it keep us from being arrogant, but instead uh, call us to humility. May it inspire us to endure hardship, to walk into dark places, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do your will because of what you've called us to in this life, which is beautiful, but in the next, which is beyond description. Thank you for these glimpses that you give us. Um, 
Bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.